This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 61, January the 5th, 1984. In our last session together, I read a letter from Mike Philbeck about the robbery and the assault, the shooting, murder of his in-laws. I heard from some of you about that. Every time I have dealt with the contemporary problem of crime in any one of our Calcedon reports, I have had a reaction. A growing percentage of the people in this country are being subjected to violence in some form. Assaults, robbery, murder, and rape. Tragically, rape, the ultimate indignity to any person, is the least punished crime of all. As I travel back and forth, and I, as I hear from you on occasions such as the response to reading Mike Philbeck's letter, it is a horrifying fact that so many of you have been subjected to these things. Now, I don't know how statisticians would rate the importance of law and order as an issue on the American political scene. But this I do know, that there is a slow anger in many of you at the neglect of these issues. We are overgoverned, overtaxed and underprotected. The result is that there is increasingly a bitterness in many, many people. These are people who love their country, but they despise the people who run it. They despise the civil government. Moreover, one of the things that appalls them is that the rights of the victim are despised, that the rights of the criminal are protected by the courts. There was an excellent book written on that two or three years ago by a woman whose brother was murdered by two young hoodlums whom he had never seen before, and for no reason at all. J.L. Barkas, B as in boy, A-R-K-A-S, Victims is the title. It was published in 1978 by Charles Scribner's son. Today, as Miss Barkas, who has an M.A. in criminal justice, points out, the criminal is seen as the victim, and the actual victim is blamed. So that again and again we have the victim suffering, especially rape victims, a double rape at the hands of the criminal and at the hands of the courts. We have a kind of sentimentalism which Khalil Gibran and the prophet expressed openly, and I quote, the murdered is not unaccountable for his own murder, 
and the robbed is not blameless in being robbed, and so on. Now, that kind of thing is contemporary sociology. It governs our courts to an appalling degree. It governs the pleas of not guilty by reason of insanity, and much, much more. We have seen in recent years some compensation made to victims, but the compensation is very meager. To cite Barkas, Mr. and Mrs. Walker were shopping at their local grocery store in Brooklyn on December 14, 1974. Suddenly, a 30-year-old man entered the store, pulled out a revolver, and demanded that Mr. Walker give it over. He then shot Mr. Walker in the uh, stomach. Walker died before reaching the hospital. At the time of his murder, Mr. Walker, a construction worker, was earning $1,000 a month. His life insurance policy benefits and small savings left his 44-year-old widow and 9-year-old daughter only $11,000. Almost two years later, the New York State Crime Victims Compensation Board awarded Mrs. Walker $15,000 for the loss of her husband's earnings and as reimbursement for the funeral expenses, which amounted to $1,625.50. Mrs. Walker would receive no further crime-related benefits, and her $200 a month Social Security benefits from the federal government barely covered her rent. She worked as a practical nurse to supplement that income. The defendant was tried and convicted of manslaughter, he was sentenced to serve 20 years to life in a state prison. By the time of his release, the murderer would have cost the state of New York a minimum of $220,000, based on the 1976-77 cost of $10,537 to imprison each of the 10,020 incarcerated felons in New York State. That, by the way, does not take in inflation. The state correction budget for 1967 to 77, 1976 to 77, was 240 million. In that same year, the Crime Compensation Board was appropriated three million to give to victims. Three million is against 240 million. Is it any wonder there is bitterness in the country? On top of that, not all states give any compensation to the victims. Moreover, when you read about cases such as the Hillside Strangler, and one such book is Ted Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z, The Hillside Strangler, A Murderer's Mind published by Doubleday in 1981. The interesting thing about this book is that when the Hillside Strangler was arrested, one psychiatrist after another was hired by both sides 
to determine whether or not he was actually criminally insane, whether his multiple personality, so-called, was responsible uh, or whether he actually knew what he was doing. A great deal was spent. trying to determine whether or not he could be held accountable before he was ever brought to trial. Well, the result is a very great decline in any confidence in civil government in this country. A few years ago, Anne Russell wrote a brief poetic description of personal irresponsibility. At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it followed naturally I poisoned all my lovers. But now I am happy. I have learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. Now, that's the lesson we are teaching criminals, we're teaching students in schools, we're teaching everyone. I was interested as a result to read this past week the comments of an historian, S.S. Aquaviva, in his book, The Decline of the Sacred in Industrial Society, published by Basil Blackwell in Oxford in 1979. Not a particularly good book. However, Aquaviva, who shows emphatically no evidence of any Christian faith, nonetheless is concerned about what the decline of the sacred means for human society. I quote from his conclusion. All that can be said with certainty is that the decline of the sacred is intimately connected with the changes in society and human psychology. It cannot be considered as merely a contingent fact. It is associated with a collapse, whether temporarily or finally, of traditions, cultures, and values. From the religious point of view, humanity has entered a long night that will become darker and darker with the passing of the generations, and of which no end can yet be seen. It is a night in which there seems to be no place for a conception of God or for a sense of the sacred. And ancient ways of giving significance to our own existence of confronting life and death are becoming increasingly untenable. At bottom, the motivations for religious behavior and for faith persist. The need to explain ourselves and what surrounds us, the anguish and the sense of precariousness, that man remains uncertain whether somewhere there exists or ever existed, something different from uncertainty, doubt, and existential insecurity, unquote. 
Now, that's a good statement, and it puts in a nutshell modern man's predicament. There is nothing for him to believe in. That creates a crisis. The modern state is systematically working to destroy Christianity. Our Supreme Court is a humanistic court of humanistic high priests. They are busily working to disestablish Christianity and establish the public policy of the state as the final word. But at the same time, what they are doing is to destroy authority. Humanism is incapable of establishing authority. In our last session together, I dealt with Michael Harrington's politics at the God's funeral. And of course, he saw the implications. If God is dead, why should I obey anybody? And who has the right to tell me what to do? Now, this is the crisis of the modern age. It is a crisis that began with the Renaissance. Temporarily, that crisis was rolled back by the Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation. But both were dead after 1660. The march of humanism continued. The net result has been the growing collapse of authority in the Western world. And because the Western world has promoted its humanism through education all over the face of the globe. It is a crisis that now affects increasingly every state. A crisis of authority. In terms of that, I think it is very definitely worthwhile to glance at something, a subject I intend to return to in some writing I'm doing. Henry Bamford Park. P-A-R-K-E-S, The Divine Order, Western Culture in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, published by Knopf in 1969 and out of print. But one point that uh, Parks makes on page 10 in a footnote, which is very telling, he says that prior to this, that despotic government based, frankly, on force was seen at the time of the Renaissance as the only remedy for the disintegration of society. Now to quote, the Italian city-state society had completely lost all sense of legitimacy so that any government had to be based, frankly, on force and fraud. Machiavelli realized what had happened, but he could not find a solution to the problem, which was, in fact, insoluble. There can be no political order unless some kind of authority is recognized as legitimate. And legitimacy always transcends rationalism. The Italian cities eventually accepted an order imposed by Spain. 
Since Machiavelli was attempting to find remedies for a disintegration, which has fortunately been a rare occurrence in Western societies, and since the terms in which he stated the problem made any solution impossible, his work is much less important than has often been supposed, unquote. Well, of course, we can disagree with that last sentence. Machiavelli did state the situation very clearly. If you do not have the authority of a religious faith, what authority can you have? And the problem of Machiavelli has been a persistent one ever since because the modern state strikes at the root of supernatural authority. It establishes man as God, or rather the state as God walking on earth. And therefore, there is an increasing lawlessness. There is an increasing breakdown of law and order. And meanwhile, of course, Washington and the state capitol go on blithely, paying no attention to all of this because they are coasting on the order of the past. And they assume that people are going to go on accepting things. But let me call attention to one simple fact. Since the election of Woodrow Wilson, the percentage of eligible voters who are actually voting has steadily decreased in the United States. What this means is that Woodrow Wilson created a disillusionment with the processes of the federal government which has since then grown steadily. As a result, more and more men feel it is useless to vote because no matter who is elected, things go on almost unchanged and only get worse. I've had people who are heads of major corporations as well as working men tell me the same thing, that they're not voting. They consider it a waste of time to vote because the last thing that matters is what the people want as far as they're concerned. In fact, I do get some very heated letters at times from people who feel that to promote any kind of political action group is futile. All this points to what I cited earlier, the growing anger, the bitterness that is in the hearts of the American people. And yet, this we have to say. Their knowledge of what is wrong in the state capitol, county seat, or city hall, or Washington, D.C., is useless. Without Christian Reconstruction, you can neither change men nor a society. Anger leads to the kind of thing that happened in Germany. When a population angry 
with the sociological views of crime, with the public or civil acceptance of homosexuality and the sexual revolution, rebelled against everything and voted for the perverse man to proclaim that he was for law and order, Adolf Hitler. They didn't buy most of his programs. They bought his demand for order. He promptly provided order of a sort, and therefore many of them were ready to forgive a great many other things he did. That's the danger of anger in and of itself. It can lead to ugly consequences. We need to work for Christian reconstruction and at the same time for political change. There's another factor. In an interesting book by James Buchanan Gibbon, Society and Homicide in 13th Century England, which may or may not be in print. It was published by Stanford University Press in 1977. There is this interesting statement. I quote, The work of psychiatrists has indicated that inability to think about the future is a contributing factor in violent behavior. A person who is unable to think beyond the short-range outcome of his immediate plans either may not realize the consequences of his actions or may find an interference so intolerable that he will react violently. Without too much distortion, this insight can be applied to medieval England. Medieval Europeans did have a concept of time, but it was not the carefully calibrated and rigidly delimited time of the industrial world. Mechanized clocks only came into use in the early 14th century. Before then, time was generally measured either in terms of the seasonal occupations of the agrarian year or by the church calendar. The only instruments available for measuring its passage were highly imprecise, such as sundials, water clocks, and hourglasses. As a result, medieval people had difficulty in determining what time it was. Unquote. Well, there's an excellent point there, but uh, the causes ascribed to it is ridiculous. It was not merely the invention of watches that led to a sense of time. It was a deepening of Christian faith. We are in a rebellion against Christianity and its concept of time today, which is a concept of the future. People who have a sense of the clock of time have future orientation. And we have many popular thinkers today who rail against our clock-bound, time-bound culture. They feel there's something wrong with it, and they blame it, of course, on Puritanism. Well, Puritanism certainly contributed to it. But the roots of it are broadly Christian. It means that man is future-oriented. 
Banfield has demonstrated the consequences of a lack of future orientation, of a sense of time. People who lack it, who are purely present-oriented, no matter what their background and their education, are lower class. We are creating today a present-oriented people without a sense of the future. This is one reason why crime is increasing. Crime was commonplace in medieval England among people with a lack of any sense of time, without a sense of the future. It's still true today. The same kind of people are committing the crime. So we need to have a sense of future orientation which comes when you have a Christian faith. When you believe that God created the world with a beginning and it has an end, which is judgment day. Nothing else is going to solve the situation, the crisis which we face of growing lawlessness. Well, now to another item related to this. William A. Stanmeyer, S-T-A-N-M-E-Y-E-R, has written a fine book on the church and state crisis in this country, Clear and Present Danger, published in Ann Arbor by Servant Books, published this year, 1983. It's an excellent study, and I commend it to you. What Dan Meyer sees is that the Supreme Court itself is violating the Constitution. It has a different ground. It represents humanism, a totally different world and life view than that which prevailed in the time of the framers. Moreover, he makes a very important statement in his conclusion. We have a great many so-called Christians today, church members, who feel that it's a matter of indifference what happens in the political sphere. They are content to let the state be atheistic. But God requires not that the church control the state, emphatically not, nor that the state control the church, neither, but that the individual, the family, the church, the state, the school, all are responsible to God. All have equally an obligation to serve him. And Stanmeyer says, and I quote, there are some truths which to the Christian are self-evident. One, God does exist, and he forbids us to build a society based on atheism. Two, the ultimate root of all evil in the world is original and personal sin. And thus redemption, deliverance from evil, will not come from a change of externals or environment, but from personal 
inner conversion. And so on. I'll let you read the balance of his epilogue to a Christian citizen. This is a book well worth your attention. Let me cite just this. He says that the great flaw of the first two years of the Reagan administration was to compress its agenda and mandate into the one-dimensional material world of economic policy. Those elected in part by the votes of traditional Catholics and disaffected evangelicals concerned about the moral uh, breakdown of our country, yet the Republicans put all their eggs in the economic basket, doing this was a strategic mistake, I believe, because it reduced their moral leadership to an accountant's balance sheet, and it put the ultimate control of their destiny in the hands of international bankers, Japanese automakers, Arab oil checks, the out-of-control entitlement programs, and other forces not responsive to managerial persuasion, unquote. He says the Republican Party has abandoned moral reform. And I think he's right. Well, now to another book I read the other day <clears throat> by Margaret Truman, Letters from Father, on the family correspondence between her father and her mother and herself. The thing that comes through in Harry Truman's letters is that he was just the kind of man I was referring to now. The church member who feels he can go to church and believe every word of what he's taught with no belief that it has anything to do with this world. The frame of reference is just to getting to heaven or to the rapture or to something like that, not to political order, to economic order, the moral order of the world around us. Truman comes through, therefore, as a reasonably decent citizen who was very much a family man, but never thought of applying his faith to the world around him. This one letter, by the way, is interesting. In one side of Truman that is particularly bad, a letter of October the 1st, 1947, to my dear daughter. He says in part, I... I've worked from sunup to sundown and a couple of hours before and after every day since the Monday we returned from Brazil. Every Republican is trying to put your paw in the hole, and every Wallaceite is making a contribution in that direction. As his old Bill Southern, Ray Roberts, Frank Kent, Bertie McCormick, and his kinfolk, Sissy Patterson. You know Bertie and his cousins run the Chicago Tribune, New York Daily News, plus the Times-Herald. All of them sabotage sheets. 
Their owners and editors should have been shot for traitors in 1943. In Germany and Japan and, and in Russia, they would have been shot or put in forced labor camps. They are still traitors. Unquote. I'm afraid too many presidents have thought that way. And it's interesting that although in other letters he expressed his hatred of the Soviet Union, here he looks to Germany, Japan, and Russia as his models for the treatment of the press. By the way, he did believe when he went into office that the Soviet Union was to be trusted. Before long, he found out otherwise. As a result, we have here a good example of the inability to see reality because you don't apply your Christian faith to every sphere. I'm going to refer briefly now to a book that I hope you will order. It is by Joseph Anfuso and David Sapansky. Now, I know David Sapansky. He's a good friend of Cal Seton. The book is about another one of our Cal Seton people, former President Efren Rios Mott, former president of Guatemala. So one of the authors is on our mailing list, and the subject of the book is on our mailing list. The title of the book, He Gives, He Takes Away. He Gives, He Takes Away by Joseph Anfuso and David Sapansky, S-C-Z-E-P-A-N-S-K-I. Just write to Radiance Publications, P.O. Box Z, the last letter of the alphabet, Eureka, California, 95501. Send them $5.45. That was Radiance Media Ministry or Radiance Publications. P.O. Box Z, Eureka, California, 95501. The cost of the book postpaid is $5.45. It's a very interesting account, and I don't think you've heard the last of Rios Mont. We are given a very important picture of what Latin American political life is about. How it is torn between the so-called right, that is, the wealthy upper classes who are determined to exploit the people and the socialists who in the name of the people want to exploit everybody also. You have a story here of one man who stood up against all this. Neither side has wanted any part of him because when he became chief of staff he began to restrain the army from its depredations and would not allow it to be used against the people. He was first shipped off to Washington for some years. 
1974, he ran for the presidency and won, but the election by fraud was taken away from him in the small hours of the morning. He refused to stage a revolution. He said he was against that sort of thing. The new regime shipped him off to Madrid. He finally resigned, went back, and went to work teaching in the Christian school of his church. He's back there again. This is an intensely interesting book. By all means, order it and read it. In the process, you'll find out a great deal about a variety of things, including, by the way, Amnesty International and what they do. Now to a book of a very uh, different sort. <clears throat> Peter Brown, an historian, has written a book on the cult of the saints published by the University of Chicago Press in 1981. It may still be in print, I don't know. But the book is intensely interesting. Brown, an historian, says that Christianity began and entered the Greco-Roman world with a starting point, a belief in a fault that ran across the face of the universe. Although he doesn't go into the implications of this, what he's talking about is that the world has fallen, that the taint of sin has separated it from God. And so this fact is like a great earthquake fault ready to trigger. Moreover, it produces a gap between heaven and earth. Well, says Peter Brown, Christianity came into this world where men had a consciousness, Christian or non-Christian, of some kind of gap. They were not ready to say it was sin if they were pagan, but they knew there was a division. The gods were remote, or God was remote. And the Christians said the gap was bridged. Not only so, but by believing in the resurrection of the dead, they held that one day that that gap would be abolished. Moreover, there was still another fact. The saints, the martyrs who gave their lives for the faith, had in their great and remarkable witness, rising above the pain of torture and being able to make a witness to those round about them, were seen as somehow having, for the moment, bridged the gap. The power of God, in other words, was manifest in them at that moment. As a result, there was a tremendous interest 
in the graves and the relics of these martyrs, these saints. It even had an impact on the pagans. First, the pagans who disliked anything connected with death or any reminder of death were horrified and angered with a deep religious anger concerning the Christian care of the dead and of graves. It was offensive to them to have the fact of death confronting them so consistently. On the other hand, it was also clear to some of them that somehow these saints had in their witness bridged that gap. This was so startling a fact that even a pagan emperor, the emperor of the Persian Empire, outside the boundaries of the Greco-Roman world, actually sent a very large silver tray to the grave of a saint because he wanted some kind of approval from heaven. Now, as Brown says, this is what led to the cult of the saints. A very important fact. Now he does say there were pagan survivals that went into the cult of the saints, but the basic fact, as this historian uh, sees it, and I think he is right, is that the cult of the saints was created by that fact that here in the midst of all the horrors of the persecuting Roman Empire, the declining law and order of the day, the rising tide of homosexuality, abortion, and criminality. Some people transcended this world for a moment in their martyrdom. Moreover, he says, there was another factor that was most impressive. Roman gift-giving was an act of politics. The state gave to the poor to quieten the mobs, bread and circuses to keep them happy. The rich gave for political reasons and to make an impression. But here was almsgiving as justice and mercy. And this was a remarkable fact. It carried a great deal of weight throughout the empire. And as a result, these saints were recognized and known, whether they were approved of or not, by people outside the Christian boundaries. As one writer of the day said, and I quote, the philosophers and the orators have fallen into oblivion. The masses do not even know the names of the emperors and their generals. But everyone knows the names of the martyrs better than those of their most intimate friends. Unquote. 
a very significant fact. Very significant. Well, now to something somewhat related. Uh, one of you, Grace Flanagan, loaned me a very interesting book by a surgeon, Maurice Rawlings, M.D., Beyond Death's Door. This was published and may still be in print by Thomas Nelson and also in paperback by Bantam Books. Dr. Rawlings wrote this book because of incidents which made a Christian out of him. He was not a Christian to begin with, and what he found was that some very shocking experiences were taking place. He said, and I quote, the turning point in my own thinking occurred because of the event I alluded to previously. I requested that a patient perform what we call a stress test to evaluate complaints of chest pains. In this test, we exercise the patient and simultaneously record the heartbeat. A treadmill machine paces the patient's exercise so that he slowly builds up to a jog, then to a run. If the heart record, EKG, goes haywire during the exercise, we can usually be sure the patient's chest pains originate in the heart, explaining the source of his angina pectoris, or pain in the chest. Well, he goes on to describe this patient, 48-year-old male. And he says, unfortunately, he represented one of those rare incidents, instances where the EKG not only went haywire, but the heart stopped altogether. He had cardiac arrest and dropped dead right in my office. Instead of fibrillating, twitching without a beat, the heart had just plain stopped. He crumbled to the floor lifeless. With my ear to his chest, I could hear no heartbeat at all. With my hand alongside his Adam's apple, I could feel no pulse, and so on. What he says then is that he started a heart massage, and so on, and the patient began to come to, and he then to resume a rather long narrative. Each time he regained heartbeat and respiration, the patient screamed, I am in hell. He was terrified and pleaded with me to help him. I was scared to death. In fact, this episode literally scared the hell out of me. It terrified me enough to write this book. He then issued a very strange plea, Don't stop. You see, the first thing most patients I resuscitate tell me as soon as they recover consciousness is, take your hands off my chest, you're hurting me. I am big, and my method of external heart massage sometimes fractures ribs. But the patient was telling me, don't stop. Then I noticed a genuinely alarmed look on his face. He had a terrified look, worse than the expression seen in death. This patient had a grotesque grimace, expressing sheer horror. His pupils were dilated, and he was perspiring and trembling. He looked as if his hair was on end. 
Then he not, uh, still another strange thing happened. He said, don't you understand? I am in hell. Each time you quit me, quit, I go back to hell. Don't let me go back to hell. Being accustomed to patience under this kind of emotional stress, I dismissed his complaint and told him to keep his hell to himself. I remember telling him, I'm busy, don't bother me about your hell until I finish getting this pacemaker into place. Then he goes on to say, after several death episodes, he finally asked me, how do you stay out of hell? How do I stay out of hell? I told him I guessed it was the same principle learned in Sunday school, that I guessed Jesus Christ would be the one whom you would ask to save you. And so on, he describes what happened. Later, the man had no recollection, no recollection whatsoever of what he had experienced. And he found that people who have this hard arrest and are for a moment dead either find themselves in heaven or in hell, but they have no recollection on being revived of hell. That aspect of their memory is totally suppressed. Moreover, he was shocked into recognition of the validity of these experiences when one person who had lost his mother as an infant and had never seen a picture of her because there was none, saw her in one of these experiences and subsequently a relative who had a picture brought a picture and it was put among others and the man immediately picked out his mother. This was a startling confirmation of the validity of his experience. Well, this is an interesting book, Beyond Death's Door by Dr. Maurice Rawlings, published by Bantam Books in paperback and Thomas Nelson in hardback. Speaking of Thomas Nelson, they are one of our finest publishers, not only of Bibles, but of good Christian books, but I'd like to call attention to a turkey because it's being very widely advertised and the conservative book club has chosen it. It is by John Weister, W-I-E-S-T-E-R, The Genesis Connection. Well, The Genesis co Connection is everything that a religious book ought not to be. Because what the author does is to go to modern science, which he believes in every jot and tittle. It doesn't occur to him to question anything that science has said about the origins of the universe. And then he tries to say that all this confirms the Bible. Well, how does he get to that conclusion? The same way every book written by some of these characters who are going to say that you can reconcile contemporary science in its doctrine of origins and the Bible. You say, well, 
Science has proven that there is a fundamental order in the universe. And the Bible tells us there's a fundamental order. That's like saying that uh, Andropov and you and I are in total agreement because we are human beings. We have the same physiological structure. Well, of course, there's a given order in the universe. The scientists, of course, theoretically affirm chance, but all their work presupposes God's order. But they don't believe in God, and they don't believe that the order is God-created. It's an accidental order. What Weiser does is to, Weister, is to assert the authority and infallibility of science and put the Bible to very, very cheap use. So I usually don't go into books I have no use for, but since this has been promoted somewhat, I thought I had better warn you away from it. It's not much of a book. Well, there's a great deal more that I could go into, but... Time is running out. I'm sorry that I had to uh, go into so much of the depressing at the beginning, the crime picture. I can understand the reaction of many of you to Mike Philbeck's letter. Anyone who has been through that kind of an experience seeing their loved ones killed or assaulted and savagely beaten or robbed or someone you love raped or being raped yourself. It's not something you get over easily and it leaves deep scars. And the sad fact is, except at election time, nobody cares. The policemen I know feel nothing but a growing sense of impotence over it. The courts will not convict in too many cases, and district attorneys will not take a case to court unless there's some plea bargaining in most cases. After all, they like to build up a record of convictions. And so there is a bitterness among many, many police officers I know, a feeling of helplessness. One very fine Christian police official told me that some are beginning to feel suicidal, because of the impotence they feel in the face of what's going on. In one city I was told that what was required of them, the police, was to go out and ticket as many people as possible because that brings in money. And arresting criminals doesn't pay off the same way. 
Well, the authority of civil government is declining. It will do no good to rage about these facts, although I feel an anger, and I know so many of you do. What we need is to strengthen ourselves in the faith, to work for Christian reconstruction, and to work for godly politics. It was not without a cause that I dealt with a book on the cult of the saints. People turned to the saints. They venerated them. Even pagans were awed by them because for a moment they saw in their lives the power of God in history. Now every one of us can have that power. If we stand in terms of the faith, if we say in the face of all these problems and adversities that if God be for us, who can be against us? For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I shall not fear what man may do unto me. Well, our time is over for this week. The Lord be with you.